welcome to the Dumpy Little Unicorn podcast. Today, I'm welcoming the author of the Invisible Library series, Genevieve Cogman. Hi, Genevieve, and happy book birthday for tomorrow. Thank you very much, Jane. Hi there. So, I have a number of friends who are librarians, and um, Hedwig wanted to know how the library classifies its books. I don't think it's by any of the regular systems, I'm afraid. (laughs) I suspect they have some system, but I've never really gone further than a particular, than sort of organising particular sort of book from particular world into a particular area. They probably have a lot more organisation than I do. (laughs) I'm sure, I'm sure they do. Now then there was, so what can you tell us about the new book that comes out tomorrow? Well, it involves Irene and Kai having to do a heist in order to get hold of a book they want as part of a quid pro quo and having to cooperate with the usual gang of misfits that you get in heist movies. Excellent. And of course, course everyone's got their own agenda. There is secret betrayals and so on. (laughs) Excellent. I can't wait to get my hands on it. It will be downloading at midnight. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So... Irene is such a joyous creation. Uh, She's practical, resourceful, and she's supremely level-headed. Did she always start out that way? Or did she come like fully formed? Or was there sort of a a development in her character? I think there was some development. She started off more fallible and more emotional. As the stories evolved and with input from my editor, she got a bit more sensible and more... Not quite optimistic, but certainly more willing to plan to win. Excellent. Um, she's 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 one of my favourite characters, along with well, all of them are. They're they're such a um, likable bunch of characters. Even your sort of your villains, they they have a glint, and they're all very sort of you know attractive to to readers when you're reading about them. So who who's your favourite character within your your group? I think Silver's one of the most fun ones to write. Yes. Kai is entertaining, especially when he's being romantic and dramatic and hasn't quite realised that himself. <laughs> yes. And there's a new character called Ernst in this book who is a bit of a stereotype of the big Russian guy. Right. He's Faye. And he's a bit, oh, yes, this is exactly what I expected. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's a lot of fun. Oh, excellent. I'm really looking forward to it. And this one thing I've really loved is um, just the world building and it's so creative. And I just wanted to sort of ask what came first. Was it the language in the library or was it the sort of like the tension between the Fae and the dragons? I think the language in the library slightly came first. And then I was working out what what the dramatic tension was between the two ends. If I have chaos and order, yeah. then what are the chaos and order? What are their representatives? What happens to people who go too far? And so on. And I acknowledge lots of inspiration from everything from Michael Moorcock, Louise Cooper, all sorts of folklore, all sorts of legend. I'm, I have no shame. I'll steal from anyone. Well, that's what makes, you know, good good books as when people have you know magpied an idea from someone else and sort of taken it and made it their own and I think the library is is such a strong idea um it's kind of like 
sort of part I mean I, I guess it's like with Irene she's like part time lord and part detective and yeah she's she's sort of a really strong character and she sort of does under you know she does underpin everything um and just wanted to ask because um over over the novels we've had sort of the character of Albrecht who has been sort of like the big bad who has possibly disappeared possibly not disappeared and there's also been sort of questioning the nature of the library itself and I for one I'm still on the fence about the library and I was just wondering if you I I guess you're probably not going to give away any hints but is, is it Oh, whether whether the the library is as you know as wholesome as it claims to be. This is where I laugh evilly, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will say the library has its own agenda, but also everyone believes they're doing the right thing. Whether or not they are is up for debate. Okay. Ulrich was absolutely right that there are things most librarians don't know about. But whether or not he's been doing the right thing in some of the things he's done, well, that's a lot more debatable. Yes, yes. It's, I do, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed is the sort of light and shade with all the characters and all the elements because you could, you know, ostensibly be on, say, sort of leaning towards the order side of things, but too much order, too much rigidity. And, you know, as, as you've said in the books, it, you know, people can't function. We need chaos in our lives as well, and I, I just find the whole balancing nature of 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 the novels really, really, really interesting and really, really fun to read. Thank you. One thing, another thing, I wanted to ask you, or rather, this is another question from Twitter, and Luella has asked, um, you enjoy putting Easter eggs in your in your books, uh, sort of references to other other novels and such like what's your favorite easter egg or what is the sort of the one that you have that hasn't been spotted yet that you're you're secretly really proud of i'm not sure about ones that haven't been spotted i mean i know people have spotted some of them like in the second book the masked city when i had Vale going through his files and comment on grant covent garden fire and flood that was a reference to ben aronovich's yes and in, um, so I'm trying to remember which one it was, I think it's book three, um, Vale examines a maid of silvers, and that's actually a reference to a maid assassin in the Black Butler manga series. Right. And it's just, there are probably others I can't think of at the moment. I think my personal favourite, though, is right back in book one, when you got this um, Prince Mortar in his boarding school, and I mentioned the names of the boarding houses, um, Bruce House, Turquoise House, and they were actually the names of some of the bad guy knights from the Knights of the Round Table legends. Oh, right. It made, well, it made sense that if you yes. have a boarding school that are named after Mordred, then probably the other people referenced in there are going to be other bad guys from Mallory as well. <laughs> it just oh, pleased me. Yes. Oh, and I think that's, I, I do like those sort of little things that sort of you, you sneak in. It, it's great. Um, and Womble asks, which world is your favourite? I think ultimately Vales, though it has plenty of issues of its own. It's not, exactly, yeah. it's not necessarily a nice world to live in unless you happen to be on the... Well, it's like any steampunk world. If you happen to be a rich adventurer, life is fine. If you happen to be poor, 
life is much less fine. Steampunk is only fun when you've actually got the money to live well in it. Yes, that, that is certainly true. <laughs> okay, would you like to do the reading now? Certainly. Sounds of pages turning off stage. <laughs> okay, this is a bit from the new book, The Secret Chapter. Irene's had an urgent request to come to the library to collect a book called The Tale of the Shipwrecked Sailor, which is a... Let's see, where does this bit start? Okay. Now, where were we? Yes, the new job. You are looking for a copy of the Egyptian text, The Tale of the Shipwrecked Sailor. It's a Middle Kingdom work, which puts it somewhere between 2000 and 1700 BC, very roughly. Do you know it? The name's vaguely familiar. I think my father probably mentioned it at some point, given his area of expertise. Her father was one of the library's specialists in hieroglyphs and Egyptian texts, but Irene herself had never really been interested in the language or the literature. Are you sure I'm the best person for this job? In terms of your scholarly areas of expertise, no, Coppelia said. But in practical terms, yes. There are a few wrinkles. Of course there are. Please go on. The version we're seeking is from Gamma 017, Coppelia said. Irene sat bolt upright in her chair. That's where I was at school. Yes, that Swiss boarding school with a language specialisation. You've told me about it often enough. For reasons we haven't yet managed to confirm, they've had an extreme swing towards chaos over the last week. We urgently need a copy of that book to restabilise the world. My past seems to be coming home to roost, Irene said dryly, thinking of her parental visit. Is this the practical reason why I'm getting this job? Because I know the world from personal experience. I'm assuming there isn't already a librarian in residence. No, Coppelia said. She coughed again and drank some more of her tea. That wasn't the reason you were selected. This particular copy of the tale of the shipwrecked sailor that we're after is ridiculously rare, which is why it's so vital in terms of the ability to stabilise the world. There's a chapter in the Gamma 017 version which doesn't occur in any other world's editions. All copies of this version have been lost, except for this one copy that made it off-world. It's possible that with time and effort we might be able to locate another copy on Gamma 017, but we simply don't have time. Our best predictions are that in ten days the world will move into the conglomerative stage of chaos, where it will be irreversibly trapped in that state. Flashes of memory twitched through Irene's mind like the turning pages of a book. People she had known when she was a child and then a teenager. Teachers, friends, even enemies, and places that she remembered. Worlds swallowed up by chaos became places where those stories came true. But the human beings who lived in those worlds might as well be dolls, moving through the steps of those stories. Their personalities became nothing more than changing masks to suit the whims of the great fae that ruled them. She would not let that happen to people she had known and cared about. Well, you clearly see an alternative to eternal chaos, she said, her voice brisk and very nearly cheerful. So what happened to this one copy that went off-world? Nine out of ten for a positive attitude, Coppelia said. Try to keep it that way. We're aware of a particular collector who owns this book, which he somehow acquired from Gamma 17. In keeping with the current New World Order of Peace and Negotiation and all that... We, the library, that is, are giving you clearance to go and negotiate with him. Irene considered what that implied. 
It's clearly not anyone resident on Gamma 17, she said, or you wouldn't have said the book was lost on that world. You've mentioned the treaty, so it's a dragon or a pay aficionado. And you must think it's possible to negotiate with him, or you wouldn't be trying. What's the catch? The fae in question is eccentric. All powerful fae are, of course, but this one is even more so than usual. Irene nodded. The more powerful a fae was, the more they fell into narrative tropes and stereotypes. It gave them unpredictable abilities. A seducer became nearly irresistible. A manipulator could convince anyone of anything. A gunman could pull off impossible shots. But that also made it nearly impossible for them to perceive reality, except through their own specific archetype. The trick, as she had learned from experience, was to find out what that archetype was and somehow use it against them. Do I know him? You may have heard of him, but probably not through library channels. His name is Mr. Nemo. Irene searched her memory and came up blank. No, I don't know him, she said. But any fae who goes around calling themselves Nemo is probably going to be enigmatic and secretive, even if they don't own a submarine. Correct, ten out of ten. Capelia refilled her cup from the samovar on the corner of her desk. Anyhow, this Mr. Nemo is a collector, a billionaire, the sort of person who has their own Caribbean island and fills it with illegally obtained treasures, who throws around the sort of money that makes governments forget he even exists, causing them to wipe his criminal records clean. Except there aren't any criminal records, because Mr. Nemo never existed, and anyone who does look closely at the evidence, which also doesn't exist, will be feeding the fishes. He favours piranhas, I'm told, or sharks. It depends on the climate. Interesting. I can see how that persona might work inside a given world if he's tied in with organised crime. But if he's a fae, how does all that translate into influence among his own kind? He's a fixer, Coppelia said. That is the current term, isn't it? He can put person A in touch with person B, and takes a commission from both of them in the process. He's not a manipulator like the Cardinal. She tactfully ignored Irene's grimace. But as they say, he knows people, and he collects things, and people too. He's also been carefully staying on the line for several centuries now. And among other things, he obtained this book, Irene said. How did we find out? My dear Irene, there are two sorts of collector. One is satisfied by simply owning the treasured item, and doesn't care whether or not the rest of the world knows. But the other sort, they absolutely have to brag about their possessions. For them, half the pleasure comes from the thought of acquaintances gnawing their guts out with envy. Even if it increases the risk of theft, they can't help themselves. I suppose we do make the ideal audience, too, Irene said. So did he brag to a librarian? Not precisely. Capelia slid open a desk drawer, her wooden fingers clicking on the candle, and pulled out a thick pamphlet. He sent us a catalogue of part of his collection. Ooh, Irene said with appreciation, extending her hand for it hopefully. Capelia wrapped her knuckles with a closed pamphlet. Not so fast. I know it's late at night for you, but think it through first. Irene pulled her fingers back, considering. Does he want his collection stolen for some reason? Or is this a convenient lure for librarians? A baited hook with a net at his end? She frowned. Or is it a shopping list specifically aimed at us? Because he really, really wants to have the library in his little black book of contacts. And he's willing to wait till we can't find a particular text any other way, except by coming to him? Partly the second, but mostly the third, Capelia said. That's why we don't let junior librarians know about his collection. They'd get ideas.
and have we never dealt with him before? A few times, Coppelia admitted, at very senior levels and on a very specific quid pro quo basis. No open-ended bargains. It was felt that if we never ever made any deals with him, he'd realise he had us over a barrel when we finally showed up. Better to have him think he's just one of our many resources, rather than an absolute last-ditch option with the prices that go with it. Right, Irene said thoughtfully. So item one on the list of things not to mention is just how much we want the tale of the shipwrecked sailor. As far as Mr Nemo is concerned, it's just another item on the semi-regular shopping list from us? Exactly. And item two on the list is that you never make any open-ended promises. Our deals have always consisted of a book or an item of art for a book, or very occasionally a service, specified and defined with fixed end conditions. Don't let him talk you into anything else. Gabelia folded her hands. On top of the pamphlet, Irene noted, regretfully. Given your new position as Treaty Monitor, he may even think this is our way of introducing you to him. Just how much can I promise him? Irene asked. What if he wants a particular book and we only have a single copy here? That's the nice thing, Coppelia said cheerfully. For the library's purposes, we only need the actual story that's in a book. We don't need the original text. I don't suppose we can offer him a cheaper deal, where we just receive a copy of the Target manuscript, Irene said, and he keeps the original? Hmm. If he'll accept that, go for it. But I suspect he won't. He's going to want to wring the maximum value out of it. I was afraid of that. Oh, well. Irene resigned herself to painful negotiations. In that case, you just need to tell me where to find him. The world is Alpha 92, and the local period is the 1980s. The library entrance to the world is in Rome, so you'll have a bit of travelling to reach his home, lair, private Caribbean island, whatever you want to call it. I've put together a pack with information and letter of introduction. The usual. The words private Caribbean island danced in Irene's head. Of course, this was an incredibly important mission, vital to the survival of a world she loved, important to the library. But it was also an excuse to get away from London in winter. A cold, miserable, wet winter. And that's why I'm pausing for the moment, if you don't Okay. Mind. No, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. I literally cannot wait to get my hands on the book now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah, and that's, and that's published uh, tomorrow. So, But by the time uh, this goes out, it will already be out in the world and hopefully lots of people will have been reading it and loving it. Um, I hope so. <laughs> At least so, here, it's out in the UK tomorrow. Yes. I think it's not out in the States until January. Ah, okay. Um, I'm not sure how many American <laughs> listeners I have, but uh, I'm sure they'll be chomping at the bit to get their hands on it too. So um, I, I was doing a little digging earlier and I sort of discovered that you have written um, some role play games or materials for role play games. And I just sort of wanted to ask about that and sort of what it involves or, or whether you're part of the rules team or whether you're more sort of part of the world building team. In the ones I've worked on, I've usually preferred to be more on the world building team. These are all what's called tabletop role-playing games rather than computer role-playing mm -hmm. games. I got involved through one person I knew in Steve Jackson, who was working in Steve, well, she was connected to Steve Jackson games. I ended up contributing some stuff for the in-nominee role-playing game. And I also ended up doing some work for GURPS, 
the Vorkosigan source book based on Lewis McMaster Bujol's Vorkosigan books. And I also did work for White Wolf, mostly on the Exalted role-playing game. I've always, well, you can't really get away from doing some of the rules most of the time. No. But I've always enjoyed writing background, world-making, history, character narration points. I always enjoyed doing little bits that were from a character's point of view, because you'd have so much fun throwing in inaccuracies or personal details. Yes. Perspective on things. Well, that's. Um, I've recently got back into uh, tabletop role play. Uh, I, I, I've kind of been shanghaied into it, but that's that's another story. Uh, and um, but I have sort of several source books from various different, um, different you know different systems, and it's one of those things. It, it's always they're always a great pleasure to read. And I, I was just that was it. I was just wondering how how you you'd obviously got into it through your friend, but it it's it does seems like. A really fun fun thing to do. I've, I've got, even if I don't play much these days, I've still got lots of source books and background books and so on. My iPad is loaded with this stuff. It's all the fault of all those sales on drive through RPG, yes, or bundle of holding, or all the other places that offer you large amounts of system and background for very reasonable amounts of money. Yes, Dreadful. I have. <laughs> I have a ton of vampire and changeling stuff and. <laughs> <laughs> yes so um i have another question from twitter and this one comes from ajs law 18 mm. and they asked uh which book first inspired you to write fantasy i really don't think i can answer that okay i mean i didn't actually have any one day of jumping up and saying i must write fantasy no <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I before this, I've been written fan fiction. I've written loads of fan fiction. Yeah, I've written two previous novels, which never, which I've not, never got anywhere with. I might try and dig them out again someday and see if I can rewrite them. Um, before that, I was doing loads and loads and loads of daydreaming, and filk music, and playing on amber mush, which was um, back in the days of text environment and writing yes. what, what your characters did. And yes, <laughs> I've still got the battered pages of a murder mystery where Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot, Miss Silver and a load of others all got murdered by Arthur Conan Doyle because he wanted material for a new story. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And I was reading The Lord of the Rings at age seven and Sherlock Holmes, even if I didn't fully appreciate either of them, I was definitely reading them and going, wow, this is fantastic. So I'm not yeah. really sure what to point out as the first thing. No, I think it's one of those things. It, if you sort of, if you're reading, you're reading lots, and if you're if you get into genre, you kind of, I don't know. Well, I certainly sort of take a bit of a deep dive, and I've sort of read um, quite a few things. But it, it it sort of it all kind of percolates, I guess. And then you find yourself, if you're writing, you 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 then find yourself um, sort of like making your own sort of way in the in the in the in you know with your with your words and making them into, you know, crafting them into stories. You sort of load up the subconscious and then see yeah. what... Yeah, yeah. Let, let it all percolate. Yep. I was reading other stuff as well. I mean, I was reading C.S. Lewis. I was... Narnia books. I was reading loads of school story fiction. I had The Hobbit read to me as a bedtime story beforehand. I was reading Doctor Who novelizations. I was reading myths and legends and folklore. 
I was reading anything my parents didn't couldn't get off the shelf before I got to it. <laughs> <laughs> you yes. can imagine, I'm sure. Yes, yes, I I think it's fair, very much the same, and um, I think it's one of those things. It's if you children are very good at sort of self. Um, Oh, what's the word? Self-censoring. Um, if they're not ready for something, it, it will be boring to them. So they'll they'll just ignore it and go and read what what you know what does interest them. So um, and I I've you know I could read practically before I went to school. So I think mm. I think the first like proper proper novel that I read was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I remember staying up till about sort of ten o'clock at night reading by the nightlight, <laughs> ruining yes. my eyes um, because I had to finish it. <laughs> getting told off because I was you know still awake and reading um but yeah it's, it's one of those I think it's just one of those things it it all it all sort of adds up and it all becomes part of part of you and part of you know what feeds your creative uh you know what well what feeds your creative process I guess hmm. so the next thing I'm going to do is these are the questions that I ask everybody. So what have you been reading lately that you have you know, really enjoyed? The two most recent books, I think, there was the King David Report by Stephen Haim, H-E-Y-M, which is really entertaining, but very quite challenging too. Technically, it's about uh, someone being asked to write a report on King David's realm. On Sorry, just a moment. King David's reign, living under the reign of King Solomon, his son, and in and in practice, it's also commentary on people trying to write history a generation later, and using it as propaganda and choosing the bits they want to convey and brushing the bits they don't want mentioned under the carpet. Yes. Given that the given that the author was living in East Germany, and had strong political views, you can entirely see them coming through in the book, and it's a great read. Okay, okay, that's 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 good. What what was the other uh, title? Harrow the Ninth. Oh, <laughs> this is why I gloat, isn't it? It this is why you gloat over the place because Harrow the Ninth by Tamsin Muir uh, follows the first book, Gideon the Ninth, which is currently out and which which is absolutely spectacular. I, and I um, can only say that Harrow the Ninth is also brilliant, and there's very little I can tell you about it without spoilers. So I'm biting my tongue at this end. Okay, ooh. okay. Well, that's that's good. Um, I Gideon is on my sort of to buy list, and um, I've heard nothing but good things about it. So I am very much there for it, and I'm very very jealous. <laughs> it's a smashing read. Seriously, sort of knocks it out of the park. The sort of smashing where you imagine someone with a polo mallet or a golf club or a hockey stick or something just whamming the ball and having it go across the horizon. It's, it's that good. Okay. I'm okay. That that's that's shot it up the list. <laughs> uh, higher up the mountain of all the books that I need to read. I need feeling I've got a pile too. Oh dear. So the next thing I ask is, oh, what have you heard or what have you been listening to? In terms of music, news, audio, or what? Whatever you like. I like to make these open-ended. <laughs> well, I've been listening to the news, so I've been known to turn it down when certain politicians come up. Yes. <laughs> I've listened to bits of music while I'm doing the washing up or whatever. I'm very fond of... I like musicals. Mike Hamilton, um, Tons of Vampire, 
Elizabeth. So I'm not, I can't think of anything to particularly point my finger at, I'm afraid of. That. Okay. No, that's, that's fine. Cause, um, uh, well, actually we were on the Hamilton panel together at Nine Worlds. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I didn't mention it beforehand. I'm but, sorry. I'm really bad at remembering names and faces. But, um, yeah, and that was, uh, you know, we, we very definitely nerded out together about mm. Hamilton and just how amazing it is and um, plans to go and see it again. Mm. And I know that you're, this is where I'm going to make a hash of saying it, but uh, the Japanese musical theatre. Takarazuka. There we the go. Takarazuka thank you. Review. Um, and um, yeah, if you wanted to sort of chat a little bit about that, because um, I that I I fell down a very happy rabbit hole watching videos on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> the Takarazuka Review is a Japanese all-female group theatrical group. It's been going for over a hundred years. They tend to do musicals and plays. They're very lush, very often romantic, terribly dramatic. They've got five main groups, theatrical troops inside the main thing, and they've also got an extra one which often contributes specific, specific artists for particular productions. They, um, when you jo- when the people join up, they usually train mostly as either a male part player or a female part player. Mm-hmm. And I didn't actually have my background sheet with you. I'd be able to give you more details. Okay. <laughs> no, that's that's fantastic. But um, it was uh, Elizabeth is one of uh, those musicals isn't it yes it's actually yeah. originally uh austrian musical but it's been produced in multiple different languages and one of them is japanese and there's been productions there both by the takarazuka review they've done about half a dozen productions mm-hmm. which i have dvds for and also the regular theater in japan has done productions of it as well okay now, of course, in the takarazuka version everyone's played by women including all the male parts and including death himself who has the most fun i'll say <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i think um I, I definitely remember watching a video of that yes definitely um and people should definitely check it out i will put some links in the info in the podcast about where to find some where to find some stuff and so what have you been watching um well i was watching great british bake-off but that's finished for the season yes. I've been watching the new production of His Dark Materials, which I'm really oh. enjoying. <laughs> it is so good. Isn't the actress playing Mrs. Coulter fantastic? Oh, she she is incredible. And the actor playing Lord Boreal. In fact, pretty much everything I've seen of it so far I've liked. Yes, I've noticed I... that they're... Sorry. I was just going to say, um, I've only seen the first episode so far. I'm planning on watching the second one a little bit later on this evening. Oh. But just the whole the whole look of it the whole feel of it um i don't know if you saw the film that came out about sort of 10 years ago but they'd you know they'd stripped out all of the meaning from it and it all feels like it's back in this production i remember the film yes i mean i was saying to some friends earlier the film had good bits but it was a bad film yes i mean nicole kidman was a good mrs coulter yes and there were great bits in it but as you say it having being stripped down to about a tenth of the time it needed. Yes. It, it, it just it, it didn't do the job. No, it didn't. And it, it, it sort of it's made for like a BBC drama. It, it needs sort of like eight hours of um of, you know, storytelling time. It needs that space to get everything in that you need to get in. 
and um and it's just stunning and um i've never wanted a demon more <laughs> there are a couple of things i would comment on based on the second episode but you haven't seen that yet oh. well no um i'll be intrigued i will i'll watch it and then i will i'll i'll email you and we can discuss it <laughs> but yes i'm really enjoying it and i understand there's new productions of dracula christmas carol and war of the worlds coming up which should be entertaining yes i'm not I, sure they'll all be good but they should be entertaining they, well they they normally are and yeah it, it, i think that's that sounds like the christmas lineup has just been announced doesn't it i could use some good tv yes definitely and is there anything else that you've been watching that, um, you know, that has stood out of late? Nothing that I've been really been trying to watch, I'm afraid. I don't watch that much TV, okay. I'm afraid. It's more something I see bits of while I'm doing some sewing or, yeah. or eating supper or whatever, and I see what's on television rather than deliberately hunting down particular things. Okay. I don't have Netflix either, so I've probably missed out on stuff there. Do there have- are... There are some gems on Netflix, it has to be said. Um, but... but everyone talking about the new Chinese drama, The Untamed, on Netflix and how good it is. I would yeah. like to see that, I admit. Okay, no, I, ha- I haven't heard of that, so I'll have to check that one out. Now, the next thing um, I'm going to ask is, um, so we've established that you have done a bit of role-playing in the past. Um, do you Do you still play games? Do you play board games? I've mostly dropped out of it, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. To be honest, my life is rather crowded with regular yes. games, plus the writing, plus everything yes. else. Oh, I yeah, I, to, I can imagine. <laughs> I used to hang out and play games online more, but even that slipped a bit recently. Okay, yeah, that it's... I, I think... Um, sort of, I play... Sort of, sorry. I was going to say, I, I play a few board games, and it's. I just find it's quite nice to sort of like weekend every now and again or you know a day on a weekend where you you see your friends and then you mm-hmm. you it, it's a nice sort of like sort of I guess low pressure way to be sociable with people <laughs> I remember the days we used to play Monopoly in the family and I got this book called How to Win at Monopoly and eventually I got so mad about it manic about it that you know sort of everyone else allied against me and in the meantime my father went and won because we were all too busy being pro-Genevieve and anti-Genevieve which probably says something about politics and life. Yes, it's um, also Monopoly is 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 one of those games. It's just it's terrible, <laughs> <laughs> and nobody plays the rules properly. What's your house rule? Oh, well, we we have a house rule of um, all of the tax money goes into the middle, and then when you land on free parking, you can pick it up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, and yeah. Oh, I'm rambling now. Anyway, um, I have a couple more questions. The mm-hmm. this one, it, this is the final one from Twitter, and it's from the Gianna Marie, and she asks, I think she, um, if you if you have any thoughts about the Library of Babel, um, and she wrote a paper on it uh, about the Invisible Library being its sort of natural successor. That's very flattering of her to do so. I read the Boris story, but it was quite a while ago. I think it was one of the inspirations. But also, I've, everything from the library in the name of the rose, you know, the Echo Book, yeah. to the library in Unseen University, 
to the library in Dreams that Neil Gaiman wrote in Sandman. Yes. The, the library of the Archangel Eve in the in Nomine role-playing game. So there's a lot of inspirations in there. I can see some of my librarians thinking that it is a suitable successor to the Library of Babel, yes. <laughs> oh, excellent. And um, my final question for today, and you can take this sort of whichever way you like, but I always ask people what, what they think needs more love. Um, I'm just thinking about an answer to that one. I think it's not so much what needs more love, but people shouldn't be ashamed of loving. People shouldn't, in, t- in set terms of loving the things they care about, their hobbies, the books they enjoy, the TV they enjoy, whatever. We can we can care about these things without needing to put down other people's personal tastes. Just because I'm not interested in football, or um, I'm trying to think of a good example, and I can't eat peppermints, or and I'm not that keen on Indian food, and I have no particular interest in cowboy, cowboy stories or movies, and yet I have my own personal tastes. And I think if people love the things they love and accept other people's tastes are different, there's loads of room for, for both of those to coexist. There's, but these days, a lot, a lot of people think that seem to feel that they need to put down their own tastes or stress that, oh, I like so-and-so, but it's just because I'm a nerd, or, oh, I you know, sort of like it, but I can do without it, or somehow putting themselves down in the process as well as yeah. themselves. It just seems a shame. People, I think, are happier when they can publicly enjoy the things they enjoy and when no one's putting them down for it. And there's room for all of us. There absolutely is, and I agree with that. And I I would add sort of things like there are also those who like to build walls to stop other people joining them in, you know, they like to gatekeep and mm. stop people and that that winds me <laughs> winds me up quite a lot. So I um, I think that yeah, it there's there's that element as well. There there are the people who are like, Well, you can't you're not you know you're not a real fan because you didn't read this and you don't know that and I think that's quite destructive and there needs I think there just needs to be more sort of empathy uh, with you know people are allowed to sort of you know enjoy what they enjoy and you know whether that whatever that is and it I guess it's like um it it, it can quite often be quite gendered so things like the, the I guess the biggest thing I can think of is the twilight fandom and the amount of rubbish that Twilight fans got for being Twilight fans. Mm. And then you look at who the fandom is and it's predominantly young women who are just, you know, making their own space and it upsets other people. And I, I, it's just, so what do they do? They try and knock it down because it's it's them trying to assert their own space. Well, fan fiction, I've heard that. I've heard that pointed in fan fiction before as well. Yeah. However... As I've heard in another of my hobbies, which is sewing and quilting, as some people have been known to say, there are no quilt police. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So equally, there should be no gatekeeping. There should be no, no policing. Everyone should love what they love and be, and, and at least 99% of the time, because I'm not going to say that every single person loves something that should be loved. Sometimes there are things which should be 
I'm not quite sure how to phrase this, but I'm fairly sure I can say that not every single taste in existence is good taste. No. <laughs> but I would say that 99% of the time, um, enjoy what you enjoy. People should be able to admit it. And people should appreciate other people like their own things as well without either side looking down on them. I agree. And that's, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today, Genevieve. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been a, you've been most kind to interview me. No, not at all. It's been an absolute joy. And um, everybody should go out and buy your new book as soon as possible. Or if they haven't, they should buy all of them. And uh... <laughs> well, I will note at this point, if you're there's currently an Amazon ebook offer on the Mortal Word, so it's just ninety nine pence if you want to pick that up on Amazon. And if you're American, there's currently a book bub offer on the Masked City. So take advantage. We go. Okay, brilliant. Thank, thank you so much, Genevieve. That's that's been an absolute blast. I hope you, I hope you enjoyed yourself. I know I hope it wasn't too uncomfortable for you. <laughs> Not at all. It's been great. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Mm-hmm.